Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are starting a new series uh, this morning, and we are going to work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This series will essentially kind of take us probably up to about Easter, although we will uh, take kind of a break uh, for Advent. Um, During that time, we'll do a different series uh, during Advent, and then we'll pick it back up in, in the new year again. So um, that's kind of the, uh, the plan. Um, let me just give us a, a little bit of, of background as we enter into this series. The context of, of who uh, Paul is writing to um, is important for us um, because it, it helps us to understand um, what, is, what is actually going on and what is actually happening here. Um, this he's writing, obviously, um, we see... Paul, and he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. So um, we have a map there, I think, kind of showing you where ancient Corinth would have been. Um, this, is, uh, this is Greece, and Corinth is right there, kind of in the middle. Um, within that, you'll see kind of Athens uh, to the right, uh, Thessalonica to the north, Ephesus um, over what is in modern-day Turkey, and then to the, to, to the left would be Italy, Rome, all this sorts of stuff. And so Corinth sits right on this isthmus, uh, this landmass that kind of sticks out um, within that. And it, it was a very uh, critical city um, during that time. This was a major city. This, is, this has a population about the same size as Greater Belfast, so about 600,000 people, which is a big city uh, during that time. Um, and it was an important trade city. Uh, the road, obviously, was going through Corinth. Uh, for this uh, region of Achaia to the rest of Europe uh, within that way. So major trade routes that way, but it was also a major um, uh, sea route. So rather than uh, boats sailing around this way, which was dangerous, um, especially during winter months, things like that, it also took longer. What they would do is they would sail into Corinth. They would then uh, cross this small little land bridge um, with goods onto the different harbor on the other side and then sail out of there. So it would save them going all the way around and it was also uh, a safer sa- sailing route um, within that. It was less, less treacherous in that way. So this is this critical kind of city with two ports on, on kind of each side and a uh, major commerce area. It had uh, several temples. Uh, so this is this big place of, of worship to different gods. Uh, one of those temples employed a thousand prostitutes as part of kind of temple worship. And so when you have a thousand prostitutes in one temple and you have multiple temples and you have drunken sailors coming through your city, you can imagine what kind of city this is. Um, it's a city that worships multiple gods. 
Uh, it's a city really of debauchery in many ways. So think of like Las Vegas, but on the sea. And this is what you have. Like if Las Vegas was a port city with lots of sailors uh, just coming through, this is kind of what we get. Um, the, the women of that day actually coined a phrase in, in, in Greek, um, and it, it essentially was, oh, he's off Corinthianizing, which meant that he was off committing fornication, essentially. So to have an affair or to cheat on your wife um, was to call to Corinthianize. That's, that's the reputation of this city. Um, it's also a very powerful city politically. Um, this is... Uh, uh, a city that was, that was rebuilt by uh, Julius Caesar himself. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a power center, essentially, of commerce, of business, of trade, but also of all the kind of um, lusts that we could ask for in the world. It's a wealthy city, um, so there's lots of money um, that's there, and there's a lot of influence that is there. And this is the kind of city that this church... Um, that Paul is writing to. Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth um, establishing the church there, so he knows them personally. He knows them well um, within that, and then he has moved on to continue planting um, other churches, and, and Paul essentially kind of gets word that things aren't going so well back in Corinth. Um, this is a church that's um, this, this chunk of, of the series we're calling the imperfect church, and it's true. Of all the churches that we kind of read about in the New Testament, Corinth has this reputation, doesn't it, of being, man, that is one messed up kind of church. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating kind of book to read because it, in many ways, the context that the Corinthians find themselves in is similar to the context that we find ourselves in today. Pluralistic, um, increasingly secular, a fascination with philosophy. So there's a lot of Greek philosophers that were there. We're going to see all of these things that, have, that are happening in the wider culture really be reflected in the church as well. And so Paul writes to them. Um, we call this book 1 Corinthians. It's actually a second letter um, to them. But he's, written, he's writing to them again, and he's writing in response to questions that they have. He's writing in response to uh, the, the, the reports that he's getting um, there that he's wanting to strengthen the church. And so throughout this series, he's going to address all sorts of stuff, divisions within the church, um, there was this partisanship and people following different leaders and, and kind of trying to amass kind of influence um, within the church. So there's these divisions that happen. They have sexual issues um, that are going on. There's sexual immorality that's happening um, that's there that they're just kind of uh, allowing and, uh, to go on. He's going to address marriage issues and singleness issues. He's going to uh, talk about how we relate to one another um, and how we should do that in love. Um, he's going to talk about uh, that, that kind of presenting itself through things like food um, and their practices of hospitality, um, how they approach food that might have been sacrificed to idols. He's going to talk about the spiritual gifts in the church um, and the abuse that was happening there, um, how we should kind of have, how we should order our worship gatherings, um, and even questions about like bodily resurrection um, he's addressing as well. So, um, here's Paul, and he's writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to them. And I want us to just even imagine for a moment what it must have been like. Um, just picture yourself in the church in Corinth. They've had these divisions. They've, they've uh, received this letter from Paul, and it's arrived. 
And in those days, there's probably a number of gathering places for the Christians in Corinth. Um, some of those were homes of prominent leaders that they were meeting in. Um, Chloe's house is mentioned um, at one time. And the, Corinth, the Corinthian believers could well imagine the kind of things that Paul would have been told, right? Paul's informants, if you will, um, would have told him about the squabbling, the rivalries, the immorality, the lawsuits they were suing each other in pagan courts, the abuse of grace and gifts that had been happening. Some probably thought Paul would show up himself, maybe, and come to sort things out. Some hoped he wrote a letter because he wasn't that eloquent of a speaker. Eloquence was a big deal in the church of Corinth because it was a big deal in Corinth. And an apostolic visit wasn't something to be taken lightly because an apostle, of which we don't have anymore, um, but the apostles in those days, these apostles appointed by Christ himself, had remarkable powers, didn't they? You see apostles blinding people, um, even people dying, um, but also people being healing. Um, uh, uh, And so here is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to them. We can imagine them coming together to, to, to hear what he has to say. There were the rich, there were the noble, there were the influential. There was Aquila, for example, who seems to be doing well in business. He seems to have parts of his business in Rome and in Ephesus. He has his wife Priscilla, who's this Roman lady of high rank. There's Titus Justus, Crispus, Sosthenes, as we'll see here. These are former rulers of the synagogue. There was the treasurer of the city who was a part of the church. These are people of influence. There were others, too, whose name become these household kind of names in the family of God, right? Like we could name certain preachers that aren't a part of our congregation, but you would know them, right? Um, we do this today. Oh, well, did you hear, if you read Tim Keller's latest book or, or John Piper or Matt Chandler or whoever your, whoever your preacher of choice is, right? Um, Some of them would have been there, and they were leading people in different factions. Some of those people weren't on speaking terms with each other. There were these gifted believers, too, people with these kind of gifts, charismatic kind of gifts. And then, of course, there's just the kind of rank and file, as we would see them, people of the church. Some of them were still slaves. Some were freedmen, along with boys and girls and youth that were there, all kind of gathered together to hear what Paul had to say to them. And so Paul, as he does in many of his letters, almost always begins by telling us who he is in relation to God and who we are in relation to God. And that's what I want us to think about mostly this morning as we think about entering into this letter because our foundation of who we are in relation to God is going to shape everything in this letter. You think about the influence of how people want you to think about yourself and who you relate to, right? Companies spend billions to get you to think about yourself in relation to other things, right? Commercials want you to think about your life in relation to things. If you had this car, if you had these clothes, if you were able to do this holiday, right? Beer commercials want you to think of your life in relation to the kind of camaraderie and brotherhood at the pub. You've insurance commercials wanting you to think about your family and how you relate to them, these scenes of childhood and marriage and buying your first home and security. 
Shampoos and foods want you to think about your life in relation to your own body and improving that. And if your body would just be the way that you wanted it to be, your life would be so much better. Right? We have all, ways, all kinds of ways of thinking about how you relate to the world, how you relate to other things, how you relate to yourself. All of these kind of philosophies are vying for our attention, as they were in Corinth as well. And Paul wants to start with where the scripture starts. It's, relent, it's relentless in one thing. It keeps calling us back and again and again. Not to deny the existence of all of this at all. This is the world that we find ourselves living in. But calling us back to what gives these things their true ma- meaning as we find ourselves in relation to God. And so the Bible defines everything in relation to God. He is at the center and everything relates to him. Everything has its true significance or insignificance in relation to God. And as we understand that, so our identity becomes clearer and clearer as well. It's when we move God out of the center and we put other, other things in the center. We put our sexuality in the center. We put even Christian things, right? Well, no, it's this preacher that's in the center. It's, it's, this, it's this school of, of theology and, and doctrine. It's this uh, uh, social cause, that we see everything through. And so some of those things are good, some of those things are bad, but how we see them, we relate to them all by seeing how they relate in significance or insignificance to God himself. And so let's look at Paul's self-understanding first. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I love just the strength and clarity by which Paul understands himself to be. He knows who he is. He knows uh, the authority that he carries in being a, an apostle. Um, and again, I wanna, we don't have these kind of apostles anymore, right? So there's nobody that can, that can exert the same kind of authority or the same kind of weight that, that the apostle Paul or, or Peter or John could have at the time. These are people that are literally writing the scripture for us. And those apostles then... Um, literally, he knows he's a dying breed. So he gives us pastors, he gives us teachers, he gives us shepherds. But it's not carrying, I don't have the same kind of weight um, that Paul carried kind of with him uh, in the same kind of way. But he's crystal clear in who he is. He is to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an emissary. He's a spokesman with inspired authority through the word of God. So the authority that I carry as a pastor is really just the authority that the, the scripture has. Paul literally is speaking and writing scripture at the time. So you know that's different, right? <laughs> so there's nothing that I can, there's nothing that I, in my mind and ideas, can just be like, hey, thus saith the Lord. My authority is really just derived authority from the scripture. That's it. And so if I say something that the scripture actually doesn't say, you don't have to listen to that. So he's, Paul's got this crystal clear self-understanding. But here's the thing. This is what I think God has for all of us. He wants all of us to understand, every, all of us to have this solid, strong, clear self-understanding. How would you write that letter? So he's like Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. What would that look like for you? Allie, called by the will of God to be a physiotherapist for Christ Jesus. Or whatever your calling is, as a father, as a mother, as a brother, as a sister. 
that we understand that we are representatives of Jesus. And we do all of this for the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing that I want us to understand today. There's freedom. (laughs) Ironic, this is Freedom Sunday. There is freedom in being defined in relation to God because there's like physical slavery that we've talked about today. There are people that are actually enslaved, um, that they don't have uh, any control over how their life is kind of lived out. Other people are controlling those things. But you and I can be enslaved in the exact same way. We have freedom of movement. We, get to, we think we kind of get to do whatever we want. But our hearts can be enslaved and darkened by philosophies of the world. Um, we, we're, not, we're not free. We become enslaved even to our own desires, the Bible says. So there's a freedom in being defined in finding your identity in relation to God. There's a stability that comes into your life when we let the scripture define who we are in relation to God rather than letting the world define who you are in relation to things, of groups, uh, 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 to your body. To know where you've come from in relation to God, where you are heading in relation to God, where you stand now in relation to God makes you one of the freest people on earth. You are a free agent. (laughs) You are free from all all of these other things. We have so many voices vying to shape our identity, don't we? We know. If you live in this country, you know that probably better than anybody else. What's your identity? What flag are you going to fly so that we know what your identity is? You have to have a flag. You have to have a, a, a badge, right? Or maybe it's by our ethnicity, or it's by our sex, gender. It's by our status, our class, Right? We're identified by on the things that we can buy, the purchasing power that we have, by our own security that we can amass. Maybe it's even by our beauty. Whatever it is. And even just that message that you have to have some kind of underlying identity that you can create somehow for yourself. But what's core to the Christian understanding of, of, of true freedom is that we are free from all of those things. That my identity isn't something that I actually have to create. That my identity is something that is given to me by the creator. And so when that happens, we're not, we're not subject, we're not, la- we're not some kind of lackey to contemporary advertising. We won't be a slave to the kinds of fads or fashions or trends. When the world is trying to leverage your decision by defining you and your terms, uh, on their terms, of your body or your car or your nationality, whatever it is, that we don't have to crumple with this kind of insecurity and dissatisfaction. We don't have to like covet other things. But we're able to kind of stand independent and free, knowing of who we really are and what your life really means in relation to God. And this is what Paul is writing, who he is, and now he wants them to understand who they are. Virtually every one of these nine verses in our text is intended to help us know who we are in relation to God this morning. It looks back to the past to define where Christians came from. It helps them look to the present of what their experience is as Christians. We'll unpack that throughout this letter. He looks to the future to see that they can be sure of their actual identity into the future as the people of God. And so let's look at a couple of these things. Um, Kind of the roots of our God-centered self-understanding and that we'll see the impact because that's going to go deeper um, into how we understand our lives and the implications of that as we unpack this book. Because Paul's going to say some tough stuff to these guys, 
And some of that tough stuff applies to us today um, because he's not just writing to them. He's writing to the wider church as well. And to hear and understand that tough stuff, we have to be able to hear and understand that in the context of who we are and who we are in relation to God himself. And so what's happened in the past? What happened in the past to make you a Christian? Well, look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's us. So we're, the, we're the, those in every place who call in the name of the Lord if you're a Christian this morning. So these three things that happened to make these people Christians are the same three things that happened to you if you're a Christian this morning. One, they were sanctified in Christ Jesus. We'll unpack what that means in a second. They were called by God to be saints. And saints isn't some kind of hierarchical kind of term. It's not like, well, you're a Christian and you have to work up to be a saint. The way the Bible uses the saints is synonymous with Christians, right? So it's the people of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, congratulations, you're a saint this morning. So you can just uh, greet each other that way. Hello, St. John, you know, hello, St. Uh, Gareth, you know, whatever, whatever your name is. So congratulations, you've been a saint this morning. And, and then third, they called on the name of the Lord. So let's think about these. One, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We usually, when we talk about the term sanctification, we think about that as this kind of ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus, right? So we become Christians, and then there's this process of ongoing sanctification. We're not made perfect. We still struggle with sin, um, but, the, but we are struggling against that. We're following the way of Jesus, and in that process of looking to Jesus, uh, we become more and more like him. He reorders the desires of our hearts. We follow him in obedience. We have the power to say no to sin, and uh, you wake up five years later, and you're like, oh, wow, look at the growth that's happened in my life. I didn't notice that day by day, but I am a lot different. Um, than I used to be five years ago. So that's what we kind of usually mean by this process of sanctification. And that is true, but he uses it a, a different way here. In this verse, he speaks of it as something decisive that's already happened in the past. To the church of God, to those sanctified. That is, to those who have been sanctified, not who are being sanctified. Behind and beneath this lifelong process of sanctification, which, which does take place, there's something decisive. There's this decisive break that happened that allows us to enter into this process. There's something in the old way of unbelief and sin. Alignment then with that has been broken, and there's a new way of faith and obedience. And this is what's happened to make us Christians. You see this uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 6, right? He would say, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists examples of that unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, uh, adulterers, homosexuals. So that's, that's all kinds. That's everything outside of a, a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, thieves and, and um, uh, greedy people, drunkards, drunkards. The list goes on and on. And he says, and some of you were those things, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You were justified. You were sanctified. So in that passage, sanctification is something that's happened in the past as well. There's been something decisive that's happened. And it has to do with experience, our experience in life. You were all of these things. And then something happened. And now you're not. You were sanctified. You broke with this old way of thinking, this old way of seeing yourself, 
and you have been called and set apart now for God and entered into a, 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 this process of sanctifi- sanctification that continues. But that kind of then raises a problem in your mind, right? How does this decisive kind of break fit in with the process of becoming more like Jesus? How can it be both a decisive break with the old and yet an ongoing kind of cleanup process? Because whilst I'm a Christian, that break has happened. I've been sanctified. I've been set apart. I've been called holy. My experience isn't always that. My experience is still, I still have these desires for the old world, for the old me. My flesh still has, has um, unordered um, desires within that. It's not like I just wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm a perfect person now, and I just, all my desires are to follow Christ. There's still this struggle, isn't there? So let's look at the next two descriptions of being a Christian. And verse 2 kind of gives us um, some help in this. One description is something God does, and the other is something that we do. So God calls us to be saints, and then we call on him for help and salvation, right? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's what God does, he calls us, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord, our G- uh, 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 the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we do. There is a decisive call to holiness that God does, that he gives, and then there's a decisive response to us, to that calling, to him. And so a Christian is somebody who's been sanctified in, in, in two kind of senses. God has brought us into fellowship with Jesus, right? That's the language that he uses here in this text. That's what it means to be called. He's brought us into fellowship with Jesus. And then we've responded to that calling by breaking our old allegiance to other masters and begun to call on Christ for help and guidance in life. Um, yesterday we had our uh, kind of a leaders gathering. We were talking really about some of these things, about uh, how we abide in Jesus and how our doing for Jesus flows out of our being with Jesus and seeing ourselves uh, in Christ as our primary identity and not what we do for Christ as our primary identity, all these different things, right? And uh, I said then I was really tempted, and I'm tempted again this morning, to use The Matrix as this analogy. How many of you actually seen The Matrix, the, that movie? Okay, a lot, most of you um, within that, right? So it's like 20 or 25 years old, so... There'll be a time where people are like, what movie are you talking about? But if you remember in this movie, if you haven't seen it, essentially there's the construct, which is the reality that most people kind of think they're living in. It's the going to work, it's going on dates, it's having kids, it's getting married, it's, it's, it's life, right? It's just the normal kind of world. But that actually isn't what's happening. What, what the reality is, is um, people are in these like cocoon kind of shaped machines And they are plugged into a virtual reality that they don't even know. So they think they're existing in this this world, but it's not real. What's actually real is they're unconscious, and the energy that's being used from their body is being harvested. This is where it gets all sci-fi, and I apologize for that. The important bit is, is that's not the real world. It's what everyone thinks is the real world, but it isn't. The real world is uh, is, 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 is much more grim. Now, for us, there's, and it's this great picture because there's this, like, this savior figure that comes in, Neo. He's the one, and he saves him, and he unplugs everybody. And, and Anyway, I won't ruin, this, ruin it for you. Watch the first one. The next two aren't as good. But, um, so this is us, right? We think we live in this reality where we have to identify as 
in relation to all of these other things. But the reality is that God is actually calling us out of that way of actually seeing who we are. Not in a world that God doesn't exist, not in this kind of secular kind of framework or a framework of other kind of false religions where we have to construct this kind of identity and how we relate to one another. God's called us out of that. Now, that's, this is, we, so you're not in a machine somewhere. You're actually here this morning, right? This is the tangible world we lived in. This is the seen world, but there's this, there's this spiritual reality of what's actually happening. And God has called us out as his people to still live in this world, but we live in this world with a different way of seeing the world. We see ourselves not in relation um, to the world as it says that we relate, but in how we relate to God. So God's brought us into fellowship with Jesus. We've responded to that. And those two go together, a call uh, from God to us and a call from us to Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to be sanctified in this initial decisive kind of way. We are positionally in Christ. Nothing can change that, right? We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are presented before God as as perfect, clean, um, righteous people. That's positionally who we are. Experientially, that's different. That's how God sees me. If I'm in Christ, he sees me in Christ. But but experientially, I still struggle. I still have to uh, remind myself of who my identity is. And so there's not a conflict by saying that sanctification is a past decisive thing and also saying that it's a present ongoing process. We are positionally sanctified. We are made right with Christ because he has called us and we have responded in that experientially and the process of sanctification still goes on by that same way. I still call on Christ for his help, for his strength, for his guidance within that. So when we say it is past and done, We mean that God has decisively called us out of darkness and put us into the fellowship with his son. And in response, I call decisively to turn from what I was trusting in that moment and I begin to reorient myself in relation to who God is. It's this decisive break with the old and it's a real experiential setting apart for God but it also leaves room for growth and progress and actual holiness um, within that. Yesterday, I had coffee, uh, or not yesterday, Friday, I had coffee um, with some people here in our neighborhood, um, and they, their self-identification in that was a bisexual feminist and a trans woman, and sat and had coffee for about an hour and a half with them and talking about spiritual things and different things like that. And this was one of the questions they had asked. They said, would we be welcoming your church? And I, I wanted to be very careful um, in how I answered that question because that can mean all kinds of different things to different people. And I said, well, what do you mean, what do you mean by welcome um, within that? Do you mean like could you turn up on a Sunday and would we tell you to leave? Or, or what, do you mean, what do you mean by welcome in that kind of way? Um, and so I, because I, I said, listen, their, their, their understanding was, we are the kind of people the church doesn't want, and we are not welcome there. And I said, well, you are no different than me <laughs> and, and every other person on the planet. We have all um, tried to make our way apart from God. 
right? This is this idea of sin. Like we are, we're all trying to live our life apart from God. I said the difference then is um, in the recognition of what God has done for us, that he has called us out, uh, we have responded to that. So now I'm not perfect, doesn't make me perfect, but I am trying to follow the way of Jesus in this way, right? So I said, if by welcome you mean can you come on a Sunday and kind of participate in, in our gatherings and things like that, then absolutely, like anybody is welcome to that um, within that. They're like, well, does that mean we could be members? I said, now we're talking something different, doesn't it? Because being a member of something requires this idea of we are all we are all striving for the same thing. We are all valuing the same thing. And so they run an organization as well. And I'm not trying to pit these two things against each other. I'm trying to help us understand this better. I said, could I be a member of, of your organization? Well, well, no, because we have different worldviews. We see things differently. And the, our, organization, our organizations are set up for the advancement of our cause, if you will, to think of it in that way. Now, I would be welcome to come along to their gatherings, and I, I hope to go. To, they're doing these kind of forums and discussions. They've invited me along to that. Um, I hope to go to that at some point. But that's different, isn't it? This is, gets down to the very heart of who our identity is. of who we see ourselves to be intrinsically as people. What our self-understanding as we look back to what, and we actually ask, what happened in the past to make me a Christian? This, we are people whom God called into the fellowship of his son and who because of that call began to call on Jesus for the sanctification, being more like him in our longings and our desires in the way that we live out our lives, in our deliverance from sin, we call on Jesus to help us with those things, right? And we use all kinds of phrases for that. Being, being saved, being born again, being converted, new creation, being a disciple of Jesus, receiving, like all of these things are essentially the same thing. Paul in verse 2 calls it being sanctified or being saints. And so it's important that we're clear on what that call is. You can't fully know what it means to be a Christian until you know what it means to be called by God. And this is going to be really important as we move into this text. It was important for Paul to remind them of who he was in relation to God, of reminding them who they were in relation to God. Because as he starts to come into and explaining certain things, and could I even dare to say make demands, because the gospel makes demands of us, it's all hearken back to who we see ourselves in relation to God. Paul would actually say in one of his other letters, he's like, I don't judge people who are outside of the church. He's like, it's not my job to tell people who are, who are not part of the people of God what to do and how they should live their life. I'm not to, it's not my job to judge them. It's my job to do that within the church because we have been called by God to be set apart, to be holy within that way. My job for the unbelievers is to tell them the good news of how they can experience life in Christ. So he's wanting to remind them of who they are. And so he says, when God calls, we stop being blind to the meaning of the cross. Look at, we're going to just skip down. Um, I'm not going to get too much into this because um, we'll save this for a couple weeks. But look at verses 23 and 20 through 25. 
of chapter 1. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So this message of the cross, he's like, it's folly to the Jews. It's this, it's this stumbling block to Jews. And it's just foolishness. It's crazy talk to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who God are calling, both out of Jews and the Greeks, the Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, when God calls us, we stop being blind to the meaning of the cross. We stop regarding it as foolishness. We actually embrace it as the very power and wisdom of God. The gospel changes us. It matters. It doesn't seem foolish anymore. It's the very heart of where we find our identity. Uh, We embrace it as the power that allows us to become more like Jesus. And so the call of God is a call that affects the change in our hearts, right? So theologians will call this the effectual call of God on our life. So that's the difference between someone who professes Jesus, but you don't see any real change in their life. There's no real fruit in their life. And then someone who's had an effectual call by God on their life. It's affected their life. It's actually changed. There's been a change because of that response. It wakes sinners from the sleep of death. It doesn't merely invite like the call of man, right? So all I can do is give you an invitation to, to respond, But if you just respond to my invitation, there's no real power and effect in that. The invitation to come and believe, the one that affects change, is the one that we respond to by the Spirit of God calling us. Now, he uses occasions like this. He uses occasions like church services. He uses occasions like your Christian friend or neighbor explaining the gospel to you. But the call that makes that effectual is it's it's God empowering that call and us responding to that. And then look at verse 26, makes this kind of connection explicit. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. You weren't noble by birth. It was nothing in and of ourselves by our kind of worldly standards. The call of God is the experiential outworking of the choice of God that God chooses to call us. What we mean is not that he merely invited us into the fellowship of his son. It's not that he merely offered me the fellowship of his son, Jesus, but that he came after me when I didn't want the fellowship of his son. (laughs) Right? Because we're all born as kind of rebels. We have this sinful nature. We don't have time to unpack all that this morning. But basically, there's nothing in us intrinsically that is seeking after God. So he comes seeking after us. He breaks down our resistance. He opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ. He enables us this free and glad submission to Jesus so that I call and respond on his name and am saved. So the call of God is this personal experience of being chosen by God for eternal life. When I was in nature, a rebellion, a rebel, uh, an object of God's wrath, as Paul would put it in, in the book of Romans. So you're like, well, why, why, are, we, why are we talking about all of, all of the tech, technical theological parts of this? Like, I really hope the rest of this series isn't so, like, technical theology. Um, well, it's important. It's really important that we get this right as we move forward. Here's why it makes a difference. This is why it's important. What difference does any of this make to kind of us living for our everyday kind of life? 
Are, are these biblical kind of doctrines of election, effectual calling? Surely these are just things that like theologians argue about. Or do they actually make a difference in how we live our lives day to day? Well, they make a difference. Otherwise, otherwise really not that important, are they? So how? How, how, how do they do that? Um, look at verse 26 again. Um, for consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You weren't powerful. You weren't noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is why it's important. It's just us reorienting ourselves to who God is, that God has done all of this, that God has given us an identity, and that he alone um, is the one who is the source of that, that receives glory for that. But that impacts us then what happens to us in the future. And this is important because what has happened in our past, God calling us and us responding to that call, what's going to happen in our future, we'll look at that in a second, impacts everything that happens in between, which is the bulk of this letter. All the practicalities of why we live this way, why we don't live this way, why we live distinctly as the people of God set apart from the rest of the culture in certain ways, the beginning and the end matter. So what happens then kind of in the future to keep you a Christian? How do you know that the faith you have now, you'll have in 10 years from now? How do you know that you'll have it on your deathbed? It's an important question. Lots of people start off with faith and then fall away from that, lose confidence in it. How does this practical doctrine of God's call in our life affect the rest of our life? Look at the very, look at chapter 15 of this, uh, of, of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. So flip the head a little bit. Look at the first couple of verses. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, that's brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So we receive that. In which you stand. That's us now in our present. And which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a way to believe these things in, and, and believe them in vain. Colossians 1.23 says that we will be presented blameless before Christ if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So we persevere to the end. And when we persevere on the end, to the end, we're welcomed into the kingdom of God everlasting. Those who endure to the end will be saved. That's Mark 13.13. 13. And it's important that you know that. <laughs> Because if that's not true, if persevering to the end, the reason it's called perseverance is because it's hard. You actually have to persevere through some stuff. The things that we're going to talk about uh, that Paul talks about to this church are difficult. They're not easy. There's a cost. There's a cost to living distinctly as the people of God. You have to persevere through that to the end. And the reason that you do that is because you understand who you are in Christ. You understand that effectual calling in your life.
without this assurance that persevering is worth it, we lose our joy. The persevering isn't filled with joy. Without joy, we lose our love. We lose our zeal. We see this happening in those seven letters that we just finished in Revelation. This church just lost its love, lost its joy, lost its zeal. It's a tremendously practical issue for how we work out our lives now in the in-between. And here's the good news, is that it's God's commitment to keeping us persevering to the end. He commits to keeping us believing. So the the answer is in verse 8 of our text this morning. So to go back to where we were in verse 8, he says... Sorry, he describes them. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. So there it is again. Christ has given us his grace that in every way you are enriched. So now he's going to talk about their present time. You're enriched in him in all your speech and knowledge. He points those out because those are two things that are really important in Corinth. The eloquence and the wisdom of the the, uh, Greek philosophers of that time and how eloquently they were able to explain things. He's like, you've been enriched in Christ in all ways, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who sustains us until the very end? You? No. (laughs) Even Jesus himself saves us, but he also sustains us. He keeps us believing. In other words, the assurance of the believer is not that God will save him even if he stops believing, but that God keeps him believing. See the difference there? That's why why we can say when someone has fallen away from the faith, it's not that they stop believing. It's it's more accurate to say they, they were never believing in the first place. Because those that are actually believing, God keeps them believing. And the evidence of them actually believing is is the perseverance to the end. It's God's faithfulness to us. Why should God's faithfulness oblige him to keep me believing? And Paul gives the answer in the next phrase. God is faithful by whom you were called. We see the connection between the call of God and the faithfulness of God. The point of the connection is this. If God has called you, then his faithfulness obliges him to keep you, to keep you persevering in the faith. Um, Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, Paul's writing. um, This is a a theme that comes up um, several different times in Paul's kind of writing because it's a, um, one that we constantly are, are wrestling with ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. This is his kind of benediction for them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, that's you as a whole person, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you see the connection that he's made there? Why is the faithfulness of God at stake in the perseverance of those whom he's called? If the call of God is just an invitation to come and enjoy the fellowship of his son, then God's faithfulness doesn't oblige him to keep you there if you try to leave. The reason his faithfulness is at stake 
in us making it to the end, the reason he's committed to keeping us believing, to keeping us in the faith, is because his call is the outworking of his choice that we should be brought to glory. God chooses us to be brought to glory. Romans 8 puts it this way. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. God's not going to call you if it doesn't mean you're making it to the end of glorification. That's the whole point of him calling you, is that you make it to the end. What is at stake in our perseverance? And what's at stake for the Corinthians' perseverance? Is the purpose of God's election. That's why his faithfulness is at stake. If God has chosen us for himself, as he tells us all throughout the scripture, Ephesians 1.4 is explicit. If he's destined us for glory, as he says in this, then his faithfulness commits him to keep us in the faith. Because outside of the fellowship of Jesus, outside of fellowship with God, there is no glory in the end. That's, that's, that's fantastic news. That's fantastic news. God calls me unto his own. And it's not like, okay, well, well, you're in now. Let's see if you can stay in. Don't screw this up. It's, it's like my kids, right? Like you go out for the day, and so you have to like try to leverage stuff with your kids. So you put like a treat at the end of the day, but it's contingent. So we'll get ice cream if... You give my head some peace on this car ride, right? If you stop fighting with your brother and sister. That's not how God does it. God calls us, promises the ice cream, and then enables us not to fight with our brother and sister the whole way through. Like he calls us. He keeps us from falling away. It's not just an invitation to come. It's an invitation to come and then the empowerment to actually stay in belief. The very faith that you have this morning is a gift from God, which is why we pray and ask him to strengthen our faith when it feels like it's, fa- like it's fleeting. That's why we need each other. We uh, talked about this yesterday with our leaders this perseverance is not, it, it's a communal project. We looked at the book of Hebrews. That we're, we're not to forsake meeting together. Why? Because we have, to, we have to speak the gospel to one another. We have to strengthen one, another, one another's faith. Remember the imagery of Moses? As long as he, as long as he held up his hands, the, uh, the Israelites would win the battle. But that battle was taking a while. And so his, his arms start to get tired, and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't lift them. And as his arms kind of fell, the tide of the battle would turn. And, and God's people would start to, to lose the battle. And so what happens? Other people come and support his arms. He's not able to hold them up himself. He needs the strength of other people to supplement his Bonhoeffer talks about the idea of the Christ in his brother's heart was stronger than the Christ in his own. Do you not know that to be true? There are times where we go through pain, where we go through suffering, we go through hard times. We get wounded and hurt 
even by the church and other Christians, and it impacts our faith. If this is real, then why are these things happening? Or we get drawn away by the temptation of sin. Sin entices us. We allow our desires to be fed by these things. To our desires for these things far outweigh the desires for God and eventually we just pack it in. What keeps you from doing those things? What keeps you believing? Jesus himself sustains us himself and the means by which he does that is through a community of faith centered around the word this is Paul's reminder to them of who they are they're not first and foremost philosophers they're not first and foremost influential people they're not first and foremost slaves they're not first and foremost any of the things that Corinth is telling them that they are They first and foremost are God's people, called. And so it's important that you know who you are. I want to close this morning by urging us in that direction for us to remember and to understand who you are in relation to God. When you look back to your past, to that moment where God called you unto his own, That we look forward knowing that he will keep us to the end. That he will sustain us to the end. And this mess in the middle that we call life. That we have to try to sort out. We don't do it on our own. That he sustains us through that. That he's given us a community to help us with those things. And that we are freed people because of that. You're not jacked into the matrix living this illusion of a life. You've been freed from that. The freedom of God in calling of of sinners like you and me is intended to give us hope, not take hope. And that's the hope then for you this morning if you're not a Christian. Is that this is this isn't just that if 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 there's a if there's a part of your heart that's like well I want that. I want God to call me. I, I, I want to I want that kind of freedom. That's not just your voice. That's the Holy Spirit's voice in harmony with yours calling you. Respond to that call. He's giving us the ability to do that. This isn't something that happens apart from us. It's not like, well, I had no desire at all, and then I just all of a sudden. Those desires that start to shift and to change is God wooing us to himself. Look at how expansive that second verse is. To all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will write in Romans 10 that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our call on the name of the Lord is a response to his call in our life. If you haven't done that this morning, you can do that today. If you have done that this morning, be confident in who you are, that God has called you unto his own, that we then have the freedom to call on him, that we see ourselves and our identity in relation to him, not in all these other things that the world says that we, we relate our identity to. That we are free in Christ. This will be important as we move through the rest of the text. That's why Paul always starts with the good news of the gospel in his, in his letters before he gets into sticky stuff. And there's lots of sticky stuff in this letter. He wants them to be rooted and grounded and know who they are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can actually call on the name of Jesus, even again this morning. 
And Father, we ask uh, for your guidance. We ask for your wisdom. Um, we don't have any of those things intrinsically of ourselves um, to be able to sustain our faith. And so we need the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word, speaking into our hearts, speaking through uh, your bro- our brothers and sisters to one another. All these different means of grace that you've given us, even the table this morning, this means of grace to remember our identity rooted in what you've done for us, what Jesus has accomplished for us, bread, your body broken for us, wine, your blood spilled for us, calling us to the means by which you've called us and made us your own. That we are even now seated with you in the heavenlies in the most spiritual sense. And Father, we long for that to be the reality. We know that it will be one day. But until that day comes, you will sustain us in the world that we live in now. Father, we think of your prayer that it wasn't that you would remove us from this world, but that you would keep us in this world, but that we would not be of this world. We are from a different place. We are of, we are citizens of your kingdom. Father, just forgive us when we forget that so often. I forget that so often. I start to allow all these other things to form uh, the way I think, the way I view myself, the way I view other people, the way I view my priorities. And so, Father, we need your help this morning. Would you do that again by your spirit even now? We ask this in your name.